0: Psalm 132, as we continue our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. And while you're turning there this morning, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open. We're going to be going back to Psalm 132 again and again. So, Psalm 132 is unusual. Uh, It's unusual in the Psalms of Ascent because it is by far the longest Psalm of Ascent. It's at least eight verses longer than any of the other Psalms of Ascent but it's also unusual in the Psalter. You see, out of 150 psalms that God put together in this book of worship, there's only one psalm that mentions the ark, and that's in verse eight of Psalm 132. Now, as we think about the ark, I don't mean Noah's ark, right? What I mean here is the ark of the covenant, David's ark. And that word, the Hebrew word for the Ark of the Covenant, appears 202 times in the Old Testament. And so I want to give you a picture of the Ark of the Covenant this morning so that you can have a visual image of the Ark. Now, according to Exodus chapter 25, the Ark of the Covenant was two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits high and wide. Now, what is a cubit? Well, a cubit was the length uh, from the, king, the tip of the king's middle finger down to his elbow, and that's about 18 inches. So this Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, is about 45 inches long, it's about 27 inches tall, and about 27 inches wide. It's made out of acacia wood and it's covered in pure gold. And on the top you have the mercy seat where you have two cherubim with their wings spread, again covered in pure gold. And it was carried by two poles made of acacia wood covered in gold through four golden rings. And inside the ark of the covenant were the original tablets of the 10 commandments. And the ark of the covenant represented God's presence to His people. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence to His people. So, at the beginning of the Exodus, and scholars would date this about 1446 B.C., at the beginning of the Exodus, when the Ark was made and the tabernacle was made, they put the Ark into the tabernacle, and you can read about this in Exodus chapter 40, they put the Ark into the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle With a cloud. And that cloud was a theophany. It was a physical representation of the presence of God. And that cloud, it was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that cloud and that pillar of fire over the ark in the tabernacle led Israel and Moses through the wilderness. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord. This is from Numbers 10. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So the ark represented the presence of God to the people of God. It was central to Israel's story. It's mentioned 202 times in the Old Testament. So I have two questions this morning. First, if the ark, which represented God's presence to his people, and the psalter, which is all about the worship of God, right, wouldn't it make sense that the psalter would want to go back to the ark again and again? But it doesn't. It's only mentioned one time. Why is the ark only mentioned one time? the entire Psalter. And my second question is this, what is the ark doing in Psalm 132? How does it function in this psalm of worship? Thanks, Andre. So to answer those two questions, we're going to look at our passage this morning under two headings. First, in verses 1 through 10, we're going to consider the return of the ark the return of the ark. And then in verses 11 through 18, we're going to look at the return of the king, the return of the king. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The joy of the return of the ark to Jerusalem will not compare to the joy of the return of the king to the throne. The joy of the return of the ark to Jerusalem will not compare to the joy of the return of the king to the throne. Look with me at Psalm 132 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Prepare your hearts for the written word of God. A song of ascent. Remember, O Lord, In David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back, One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine." So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word, may He write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, in a season of floods and natural disasters and racial strife and tension, sometimes the world feels like a very dark place. And Father, in this season, today, as we open Your Word, I pray that we would find a great and expectant hope. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So, first of all... <clears throat> the return of the Ark, the return of the Ark. In 1981, Harrison Ford parlayed his fame and renown uh, as Han Solo in Star Wars into another character. You know who that was? It was Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, I would posit to you this morning, those two characters are essentially the same character, right? It's just that one character is set in 1936, pre-World War II, and the other character is set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. In the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones is a professor, and he's an archaeologist, right, who... Uh, in his adventures, he goes off and he's a whip cracking, gun slinging seeker of, iniquity, of antiquities. Well, maybe and iniquities too. <clears throat> um, and uh, his quest in The Raiders of the Lost Ark is the Ark of the Covenant. And according to the movie, the Ark was lost when it was taken by an Egyptian pharaoh, Shishak, in 980 BC. And Shishak took it to the lost city of Tanis and when it got to Tanis God wiped the city of Tanis out with a sandstorm and so the city was gone but it turns out in the movie that the Nazis had found the city of Tanis and they were looking for a medallion and that medallion would show them where the Ark of the Covenant was in the lost city of Tanis and it was up to Indiana Jones to find the ark before the Nazis did. So that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't fall into the wrong hands. But you see, that story is actually a fictional retelling of something that happened in history. You see, according to the Bible in uh, 1 Samuel 7, there was a time that the Bible speaks of where the Ark was taken and it was lost and there was great sadness, and then it was found and returned, and there was great rejoicing. In 1 Samuel 7, it says that the men of Kiriath-Jerim took the ark, and it was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim for more than 20 years, and there was great sadness in Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 6, the story is told of a hero who discovers the ark and returns it to Jerusalem. But this hero isn't an archaeologist, a gunslinging slinging uh, acquirer of antiquities. No, this hero is King David. David, who's a warrior and a poet, who's a sinner, but as a man after God's own heart. And when the ark is retrieved, it isn't stashed away in some museum. Sorry, a spoil alert for those of you who haven't seen Indiana Jones yet. It's not stashed away in a museum to collect dust. No, it's returned to Jerusalem. It's returned to Jerusalem. And when David returns it to Jerusalem on Mount Zion, there's overwhelming joy. There's this great party and there's dancing. It's a celebration. Why? Because the presence of God has been returned to the people of God at the place of God. Now, the ark, with its story and its symbolism, would have been common knowledge for Hebrews, right? They would have talked about the ark the way Christians talk about Jesus, the way college students talk about their campus, the way Fauci talks about COVID, they would have known the story of the ark. And so the psalmist here, in verses 1 through 10, gives you a montage of images and ideas to recall that story, to refresh and rekindle the story of when the ark was taken and when it was returned. So let's walk through that montage. So the psalmist starts here in verse 1 with the hero, with the hero. And the hero is David. And verse 1 really is the whole thrust of the prayer. And it's this it's remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Or remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. The idea here is remember. David, right? The psalmist is asking the Lord to remember David, and we'll see later to remember the covenant with David, right? Everything else from this psalm goes back to and flows out of that one prayer, remember David. And at the center of remembering David is that David swears an oath to the Lord, Now, this is one of two oaths in the psalm. We'll later see how the Lord makes an oath to David. We'll see that down in verse 11. But here, we're looking at David's vow, David's oath to the Lord. And we see it in verses 3 through 5. Look at the text. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until, until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, it's in quotes there, not because it's quoting a particular passage. You'll find these ideas everywhere. It's in quotes because David is speaking. This is in David's voice, and you can hear David's passion. And what's his passion? He wants to find a place for God to dwell but, but what does that mean? I mean, David's a good theologian. David knows that God is omnipresent, that He's everywhere, right? That He fills the whole earth. So what does it mean that he's looking for a place for God to dwell? Well, he's looking for a home for the ark, which is the representation of the presence of God. And David is so consumed with finding a place for the ark, with finding a place for God to dwell, that he won't sleep. He won't give his eyelids slumber, right, until he completes his mission. That's dedication. That's drive. It's David's consuming passion. And that passion led David to do two things. That passion for God's place, right, to bring the ark, it led him to two things. First, it led him to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And you can read that story this afternoon in 2 Samuel chapter 6, but it's alluded to here in verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it, that is we heard of the ark in Ephrathah. And Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem, or the city of David. So we heard of the ark in Bethlehem, so we hear of it but, but it's not here, so we go looking for it, and then it, re- read on. We found it, we found the ark in the fields of Jar. And this is Kirith Jerim from 1 Chronicles 13. They found it in the fields of Jar. So we're, we hear of it, and then we go and we find it, and then keep, keep reading verse 7 let us go to his dwelling place, right? So now we have the ark, let's go to his dwelling place. We're going to take the ark to Mount Zion. And by the way, to return the ark to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, David would have carried it along the same path that those singing this psalm of ascent would have been walking on their pilgrimage, okay? It's the same path on the same mountain some 600 years later. So we hear of the ark, we find the ark, we're taking it back to his dwelling place, we're taking it back to Mount Zion, and then let us worship at his footstool. Footstool is another name for the ark, right? So they get the ark, they take it to Mount Zion and they, in Jerusalem, and the people worship, it's a huge celebration, Why? because the presence of God has been returned to the people of God at the place of God. But not only did this passion of David for the ark lead him to bring it back to Jerusalem, this passion also led David to another thing, to a second thing. You see, when David recovers the ark, he brings it back to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he sees this inequity, right? He says to Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 7, verse 3, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And he says, I want to build a house for God. And God replies through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 8, I took you from the pasture when you were just a shepherd, and I made you into a king, and I have been with you, and I've cut off your enemies from before you, and I've made your name great. You wanna build me a house, David? I'm gonna build a house for you. I'm gonna make your line into a dynasty. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom he will build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and so this passion leads david to begin to gather materials for the temple and he gathers and he gathers and then solomon builds the temple, and it takes Solomon seven years. And at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 966 BC, the Ark of the Covenant is put into the temple. It's put into the Holy of Holies, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple with a great cloud. Just like 480 years earlier, when Moses put the Ark in the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle, and then Solomon prays, and in 2 Chronicles 6, 41 and 42, his prayer ends with this, and listen carefully, because you've heard these words already, it should sound familiar, and now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David your servant." Those words sound familiar. We've heard them before. They're, they're almost verbatim from verses eight through 10 in Psalm 132. Look at verses eight through 10. And hear the echoes, the reverberation. "Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's taking this montage of images and ideas, and he's invoking the story of the ark. He's saying there was a time before where the ark was lost. But David had a consuming passion for the ark, and he found it, and he brought it back to Jerusalem and back to Zion. And, he, and then Solomon, his son, builds a temple, and the ark was put into the temple, and the glory of the Lord returned to, the, to Jerusalem, and the saints shouted with great joy. It's a huge celebration. Why? Because the presence of God had been returned to the people of God at the place of God. Now, remember, this is the only place in the entire Psalter that mentions the Ark. Why is it not mentioned more? Well, think about the context of the Psalter, right? The Psalter is arranged around 400 BC, and at this time, no one had seen the Ark for almost 200 years. You see, the Ark was taken when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC, Israel was conquered and taken into captivity in Babylon, and the ark disappeared forever. Now, by 400 BC, some of Israel had returned to Jerusalem and tried to rebuild the temple, but the glory of the Lord never returned. The ark was never found. There was no king on the throne. There was no throne. Israel didn't even possess the land that was their inheritance. They lived in it, but they weren't owners. They were merely tenants. They were foreigners and sojourners in a land that was supposed to be their inheritance. And I think that's why the Ark is only mentioned one time in the psalter. It's mentioned 202 times in the Old Testament, because it's central to Israel's story, it's central to Israel's worship, but now it's gone. And the Psalms are trying to help God's people shift, right, to, to worship apart from the ark, to worship apart from the temple. Worship is shifting, worship is changing. So I refer to the ark in Psalm 132? Why, why refer to it at all? To answer that question, I'm going to pivot from the return of the ark in verses 1 to 10 to the return of the king in verses 11 through 18. Now remember, the whole thrust of the psalm goes back to the beginning at verse 1, remember David, right? Verse 1, remember David. Verse 2, because David makes a vow. Verse 3, David's vow is consumed with David's passion for the ark. Verses 6 and 7, David rescues the ark. Verses 8 through 10, he's quoting David's son praying at the dedication of the ark. And by the way, look back. Did you catch the end of Solomon's prayer there in verse 10? Do not For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now think back to the original audience, right? We're back at 400 B.C., and in their world, it would seem like God has turned his face away from his anointed one, right? Remember the promise in 2 Samuel 7.13 was, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But now there's no king. There's no throne. It seems like the kingdom has failed. And so what does the psalmist do? In verse 11, he returns to the oath. He returns to the truth that the Lord swore to David. And again, this isn't an exact quote, but you'll find these ideas in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Psalms, but it's in quotes because it's in the Lord's voice. The Lord is speaking. Listen to the Lord's oath to David there in verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. In Hebrew, it's a truth. From which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will sit on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. But there's no king on the throne. Why, why is the why is psalmist bring this up here? You see, it's not that the Lord's oath to David has failed. It's that the line of kings Has failed. It's that each king, again and again, has broken the covenant, has failed to obey the testimonies. And so, repeating this oath in that context, where there's no king on the throne, can you hear what God is saying? He's saying, Look for another. Look for a coming king, one from the line of David who will succeed. Where every other king failed, who will keep the covenant, who will keep the testimonies. I will sit that king on my throne forever. So, why does the psalmist tell the story of the ark at the beginning of Psalm 132? He's creating a parallel he's creating a parallel. Sometimes history is our greatest teacher. The psalmist is saying to the Israelites in 400 BC, he's saying, you're grieving, you're heartbroken, because it seems like God is not present with his people. It seems like the promises of God have failed. And the psalmist is saying, we've been there before, We've been there before. Do you remember Do you remember when the ark was lost and David found it and he brought it back and Solomon put it in the temple and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and there was a great celebration. There was a great party. There was overwhelming joy. Why? Because the presence of God had been returned to the people of God at the place of God. And the psalmist is saying, it's going to happen again. Sadness will give way to joy. Sadness will give way to joy. Yeah, there's no king, there's no ark, there's no glory. It seems like the promises of God have failed. God's people are without God's presence in God's place. But the party's coming. The joy is coming. The celebration is coming. The psalmist is saying, hold on. Sadness will give way to joy. One of the great Easter meditations of the last century was written by S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge was the African American pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, a prominent African American congregation in San Diego, California. And he was a pastor of that congregation for 40 years. And the title of his Easter meditation is It's Friday. It's Friday but Sunday's coming. One author says Friday was a metaphor for betrayal, denial, cowardice, hate, suffering, despair, defeat, and death. But Sunday? Sunday symbolized victory and help and hope and healing and love and joy and eternal life. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so often, brothers and sisters, we're called to live between Friday and Sunday. We may feel the darkness. We may hear the hatred. We may see the brokenness. We may taste the injustice because it's Friday. But oh Christian, Sunday's coming. The psalmist is saying there's no king, there's no ark, there's no glory. It seems like the promises of God have failed. But the presence of God will be returned to the people of God at the place of God. The celebrations coming, the parties coming. How can we know that? How can we be sure? Look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion he has desired it for his dwelling place. And then God speaks, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And because the Lord has chosen Zion as his dwelling place, as his resting place, when the king comes, this covenant-keeping king, when he comes, that king will reign from Zion. Look at verse 17. There, I will make a horn to sprout for David, This is in the future. There I'm going to do this. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so you have a horn and a lamp and a crown. A horn, a lamp, and a crown. And these are symbols of the coming king establishing his kingdom. The, The horn It's a symbol of power and strength. God's going to give power and strength to his king to rule and reign. The lamp symbolizes light. God is going to give his anointed one light to guide him through the darkness. The crown, it's not the typical word for crown. The word for crown here is used for the priest's headdress. And this symbolizes consecration and holiness. You see, God is telling us this is what the coming king is going to be like, full of power and light and holiness. His kingdom is one of victory and radiance and glory. And when that king, when that king is on the throne, oh, oh, the party we will have. Look at the kingdom in verse 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless her provisions, I will satisfy her poor with bread. You see, in this kingdom, God gives abundant blessings for his people with a special view to the poor, to the destitute, to the downtrodden. They will be satisfied in the coming kingdom. And look at the next verse and listen closely. This should sound familiar. Verse 16, Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. Look back at verse 9. You've heard that already as a part of the prayer of the dedication of Solomon's temple when the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This king, this coming king, is going to clothe us in salvation. He's going to clothe us in righteousness. You'll be wearing a garment of salvation while his enemies, look at verse 18, while his enemies are clothed in shame. And then we will shout for joy. The king has come. Let the party begin. And with that great hope, the hope of the coming king, the people of Israel, three times a year, would make the pilgrimage to Zion. And they made the pilgrimage to Zion an expectant hope, saying, the presence of God will be returned to the people of God at the place of God. The celebration's coming. The parties coming. They're saying there was a time before when we lost God's presence, but the king has brought it back to us and we worshiped. And it's gonna happen again. And do you know what, Christian? It did. It happened again. Do you remember how Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of Matthew? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew's saying he's of the line, the lineage of David. And do you remember how he's introduced in John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, Jesus is the presence of God. And then John goes on in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His, what? His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is of the line of David. He's the presence of God. He's the glory of God. He's full of power and light and holiness, and His kingdom is one of victory and radiance and glory. And that path, That path up Mount Zion to Jerusalem, where David carried the ark, about a thousand years later, another king would walk in the footsteps of King David. But this king didn't carry the ark, representing the presence of God. This king carried a cross, and he himself was the presence of God. And this king ascending Mount Zion had an unusual kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom of paradox, where to be victorious meant to suffer defeat, where to reign meant to submit, where to give life meant that he had to die. Do you remember Solomon's prayer in verse 10? For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. But don't you see? God the Father did turn his face away from this king, from this greater David, from this anointed one. And as Jesus was hanging there, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his spirit on the mountain that Friday. And when he did, do you remember what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because the presence of God had been returned to the people of God at the place of God. And now, brothers and sisters, we are clothed in righteousness. We are clothed in salvation. We have abundant blessings. And so we can shout for joy. But sometimes, especially these days, sometimes, it still feels like Friday. You see, the king came, and he reigns, and he's also coming again. But because he's coming again, sometimes, like the Israelites, we too live between Friday and Sunday, waiting for his return. And so we take our pilgrimage in expectant hope that one day, when the day breaks and the shadows flee away, Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet's call, lift your voice, because it's a year of jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. And oh, brothers and sisters, then, then the celebration will begin. Then we'll experience the joy that we've only dreamt of, and the deepest longings of our heart. Will finally be satisfied. Hang in there, Christian. The party's coming. I want to close with an excerpt from S.M. Lockridge's meditation on Easter. All the words are there in your bulletin. I've selected some of them. It's Friday. Jesus is praying, Peter's asleep, Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning, and the evil's grinning. It's Friday. The earth grows dark. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday and Sunday's coming. Hang in there, Christian. Sadness will turn and give way to joy. The party's coming. You see, the joy of the return of the ark to Jerusalem will not compare to the joy of the return of the king to his throne. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father... With everything going on in this world, sometimes we feel Friday so hard and so long. Would you give us the expectant hope of the coming King, of the return of the King? Would you give us a picture of the clouds being parted and Jesus descending in His kingdom in all of its glory and goodness and justice and truth coming and reigning? Oh, Father, we long for that day Now as we turn to your table, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we sing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.